1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and let's read the first verse. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Obviously, you know, the chapters of the books of the Bible were added later to be helpful. And I'm very grateful to whoever it was that came up with that idea because it makes it much easier. But while we have a chapter break here, it is, of course, very much tied to what came before it. We see that word for, which is similar to the word therefore. And anytime you see a word like that, for or but or any of those conjunctions, you want to make sure you look back and see what was said before so that you know what he's about to say, how it relates to that. Now, last time we saw that Paul, Silas, Timothy, they greeted the Thessalonians, and then they spent the rest of chapter 1 explaining, remember, how they knew that they were true Christians, how they knew that they had been truly saved, and they ran through all these things that were sincere fruit of sincere faith. And now, as we get into chapter 2, and as we get into chapter 3 as well, these authors are going to write about themselves now. And they're going to use this repeated language that we're going to see, as we see here in verse 1, of knowing and remembering. They'll say, you know, or you already know, or they'll say, as you remember. They're calling to mind their attention to how the apostles had conducted themselves in Thessalonica. And this is going to go on through chapter 2 into chapter 3 really to the end of chapter 3. And there's a number of purposes for this. Paul had to do this sometimes to explain and define his own ministry, particularly in the Corinthian epistles. But there's, there's three reasons that I'm going to give you very quickly here. Number one, Paul wants to clear the air about what happened in Thessalonica. We're going to remind ourselves in a minute, but Paul was only there for a short time. And he got run out of town by an angry mob, as often happened to him. And he had to go to Athens and then to Corinth. So he wants to explain and remind them I didn't just abandon you guys. Number two, he wants to address any lingering doubts the church might have about them. So similar, but a little different, that maybe some of them were saying, this guy just, he doesn't care about us. They were here, it was great, but now he's gone and we're on our own like we always are. Maybe there were some Jewish or even Roman opponents that were coming to them and whispering in their ears about Paul and Silas and Timothy. And so he wants to clear that up. And number three, and this is the most important reason, I think, and it's what we're going to focus on today, they're wanting to lay out an example for the church to follow. And not just for them, but for us as well. Because he reminds them there, he says, Our coming to you was not in vain. That word for vain is kenos in Greek. It means empty. Our coming to you was not empty. It wasn't hollow. It's the same word that is used when we describe how, in Philippians, Christ emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. The kenosis of Christ is related to the word kenos, which means empty. So he's saying, there, our coming to you wasn't just a big waste of time. It was effective. It accomplished its goal. Even though it was only there a short while, it was not a waste. Last week was all about the sincerity of the Thessalonians and their salvation, and now he's going to say, you remember how he said, you become imitators of us. And he's going to remind them what kind of service they had. And there's an interesting play there because he begins in chapter 1 by saying, here's how we know you're Christians. And then in chapter 2 he says, and this is the kind of service you ought to have as you imitate us. Every generation of the church, including this one, has tried to pawn off service in the church to some special class of men. Whether that was 
the monks early on. If you want to be spiritual, you want to serve God, you've got to go join a monastery and become a monk. Or the clergy, as we called it. Well, if you really want to serve God, you really want to serve the church, you've got to go to become a pastor. You've got to be a circuit rider, whatever it is. And even today, if you really love Jesus and you want to know the Lord, oh, you've got to go to seminary. You've got to go get some education. You've got to go get some training. And we say things like, well, I couldn't do that because I'm not a pastor. God couldn't use me that way. But it's interesting how Paul immediately goes from describing their salvation to describing his service that they ought to imitate. The implication being, if you're a Christian, you ought to be a servant in the church to the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, I'm not going to read it, but it says that the job of the leadership is not to do all the ministry, but to equip you, the saints, to do the ministry. That's my job. My job isn't to do everything for you. My job is to help you do it on your own. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, he, he put it this way. As each, or since each, has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Everyone has received a gift. That word is charisma in Greek. It comes from the word charis, which means grace. God has given you his grace, which manifests itself in certain gifts. We call them spiritual gifts. And we all know that. We all love having our gifts, but sometimes we can become inward with them. And it's all about me and taking care of me, and I have my own little private thing. But Peter and Paul and all the rest are like, if God's given you a gift, get out there and use it. You have a responsibility in the church to build up the body of Christ. That's what that metaphor means. You know that, right? A body has lots of different parts that do lots of different things. Your hand is not the same thing as your ear. Your stomach is not the same thing as your brain. But you need both of those things. And Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 12 how foolish it is to say that it's better to be a hand than a foot or it's better to be an eye than a nose. He goes, it's ridiculous because we need all of that. And so in the body of Christ, we've all been gifted differently. Peter just called it God's varied grace. No one is gifted exactly the same way as anybody else. But if we're not all using the gifts that have been given to us, if we're not all serving one another, then the body of Christ is not going to function properly. If you've ever been injured or you've ever been sick or if you've ever known or if you've ever had a disability of your own, you know what it's like when part of the body's not doing what it's supposed to do. Even in, in little ways, when you have a really bad cold for a long time and you start to think things like, I can't even remember what it was like when I didn't have a stuffy nose. What's it like to take a full breath? I can't remember because I'm so clogged up in my nose. And it, we think about that. And you don't, you don't think about your nose most of the time. You don't think about your pinky toe until you jam it into the door jam real hard. It's all connected and tied together. So we all have a responsibility. This body, not even just the capital B, the body of Christ, but this body, Calvary Chapel, will not function properly if every part is not doing what it's supposed to do. The Thessalonians were to be imitators of Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. And so now Paul is going to remind them of what they're supposed to be imitating. And he's specifically describing their ministry here, which can apply to you and your ministry. Because you do have one. Not talking about necessarily a full-time vocational ministry, but you've got work that you need to do in the church. And as we go through this, I was able to draw out seven things. That's not some holy number, that's just how many I counted that ought to characterize your Christian service. If you want to do work for the church and work for Christ that is not in vain, that's not a big waste of time, and I'll tell you, I've done a lot of ministry. I've had days where I come home and I go, that was kenos. That was a waste of time. That was vain. 
that there was nothing good that came out of that. Not very often, but it does happen. But if you want to have service that is not just faithful, but is also fruitful, we're going to look at these seven things here. Because their coming was not in vain, so they obviously know what they're doing. So let's look at verse 2, and we'll start to work through these. Our coming was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, there it is again, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Our coming was not in vain, and he, he reminds them then of the persecution they had faced in Philippi which was the city they went to before Thessalonica. And he says, even though we went through all that, we were not afraid when we came to Thessalonica. It didn't prevent them from speaking boldly. In Acts chapter 16, verse 9, Paul got a vision of the Macedonian man. Do you remember this story? They're in Troas. They're waiting. The Holy Spirit had prevented them from going into Asia and Bithynia. So, like, all right, where, Lord? And he has a vision of a Macedonian man saying, come over and help us. And so they got on a boat, and they immediately went to Macedonia, and their first stop was Philippi. Now, you'd think with a, with a call like that, with such an obvious word from the Lord that it's time to go, you'd think, oh, well, this is going to be no trouble. There's going to be widespread revival. It's going to sweep through the countryside. But actually, they get there, and they end up getting beaten publicly. They get jailed without a trial. And they had to be miraculously delivered out of the prison, which God did. But even so, after that's done, the, the leaders of the city come to try to compel them to leave the city. Do you remember this part? When they found out they were Roman citizens and they said, hey, we are uh, sorry that we beat you guys. Could you please leave at like three in the morning so that nobody knows that we accidentally did the wrong thing? And Paul goes, uh, I don't think so. You're going to offer me a public apology and you yourself are going to escort me out of this city. So not really an auspicious beginning to a Macedonian ministry, huh? But Paul said, even though all that happened, even though we got beaten with rods in the public square and were put in prison and all the rest, when we came to Thessalonica, that did not intimidate us. We didn't back off. He said, we spoke boldly. They did not try to hide, even though, of course, there was persecution there, too. There was a public riot, and there was even financial penalties. But he says, we had boldness in our God in the midst of much conflict. So here's your first thing. We ought to have courageous service, bold, brave service, because there's going to be conflict that word for conflict, this is interesting. The word in Greek is agon. It's where we get the word agony or agonize. And it refers specifically in that context as to a contest that the athletes would get together into the agon. And especially referred to wrestlers. We still talk about Greco-Roman wrestling, right? That was a big deal then. So they would get into the agon. They would get into the contest with each other. And Paul's like, that's what our ministry was like. It was like a wrestling match. It was like a big MMA fight where you're trying to make each other tap out. And he says, even still, we were not afraid, and we still spoke boldly. Your service to Christ and his church, let me just go ahead and tell you right now so that you don't ever get disappointed. It will not always be without conflict. There, doesn't that feel better? You know already there's going to be conflict. Now here he's referring to external persecution. And that may come, especially if you become a missionary and you're going to go to the front lines of the gospel. There may be that persecution that comes. But it, it's more than that, too. What kind of conflicts do we face in ministry? Let me just throw out a couple. You deal with petty people. Oh, man. Pettiness, for some reason, is like a fungus that grows in the church, man. 
Whenever Christians gather together, that, that starts to come out because a lot of times we're on guard against the big stuff, so Satan comes and he makes us petty. It's like, well, you, you, you didn't shake my hand this last Sunday. What, are, we, are we upset with each other now? You know, I never liked her much anyway, so pettiness. Or, well, why did you schedule me for this Sunday instead of that Sunday when you knew I wanted to be, you know, that pettiness, right? When we start making little things into big things, Things that ought to be as simple as, this is not a big deal, you know? And we ought, to be, we ought to be careful to let each other know when we're being petty with one another. Like, yeah, that's really not a big deal. Don't be petty. Petty people. Aggressive people. That'll happen in ministry. There are some folks that feel like they have no control and no authority anywhere else in life. So they come to a church and they say, no one's pushing me around here. And they find people that are, you know, we're trying to be kind. We're trying to be loving. We're trying to be compassionate. So there are folks that want to take advantage of that in order to get their own way. I've had this happen before, especially when I was 18, 19, 20 years old uh, on staff at the church that I used to work at. There would be grown men and grown women. Sometimes the women were even more aggressive. I'm serious. And there's no theology behind that. It's just my experience. They would get in your face with stuff. You have to do it this way. If you don't do it this way, I'm leaving and I'm taking my tithe with me. If that's ever your attitude, go ahead and get out because we don't need that here. There's going to be that conflict. Aggressive people. Divisive stuff from out there that comes in here. Oh, 2020 is the poster child for that. Everybody's hot and bothered. See how quiet it got when I said that? That's what I'm talking about. Everybody's hot and bothered about something in the news. And some of you are reading different sites so you have different opinions. And then it comes in here, and all of a sudden we're trying to talk about the Lord, and instead we're talking about that mess. All that's going to be there. Now listen, we're not so much today going to talk about how you navigate those things. All that's important is that you know it's going to be there. And you cannot let go of your courage in those moments. You've got to be bold to serve in those moments. I love the story of Micaiah in 1 Kings 22. One of these days, of course, we're going to run through the whole story, but... This is when Ahab and Jehoshaphat had a marriage alliance. They were going to go up to battle at Ramoth-Gilead, and Ahab calls all his prophets, and they're all prophesying, you're going to have a great victory, Ahab. But Jehoshaphat, who was a godly man, knew something was up, and he goes, isn't there like another prophet? (laughs) Is there another? Is this all you've got? He knew it just wasn't quite right. And Ahab goes, well, there's this guy, Micaiah, but I hate him because all he ever says is bad stuff. And Jehoshaphat goes, let not the king say so. To the way of saying, oh, don't say that. Call him up, right? And so they go get Micaiah out of the dungeon. And it says in 1 Kings 22, 13, the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. He's like, look, man, everybody is on his team. Just please, just for the sake of, of Unity. We're trying to get the nation back together, man. Let's just, just say yes. It's okay. It's not a big deal. But Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. He's coming out of the dungeon. He's got an opportunity to get out of prison. And he's still saying, uh, no way, pal. I'm not compromising anything. And he gets in there, and it's actually, you can read the story on your own. He gets really sarcastic with Ahab, and it's a you know, he, he says, oh, yes, Ahab, you're going to have a great victory. And Ahab says, how many times have I told you not to lie to me? And he gives a really terrible prophecy about Ahab, and it leads to his death. But the, the whole point I'm trying to draw out of that is he was a bold man. He, he was already in prison. Now he's coming out of prison. He's got the opportunity to make good for himself. And he's like, I'm only going to say what the Lord has told me to say. 
Jesus said that too, right? I only say and do what I hear the Father say and what I see the Father do. If you're going to let conflict deter you from doing what God's called you to do, you might as well hang it up. I'm just telling you right now, if you're going to let conflict with people or conflict with government or conflict with the city or anything else deter you from ministry, sorry, you're not going to enjoy this one bit. You've just got to know that that's the way it is and know that we've got to be bold in what God has given to us and step forward. That agony is always going to be there. Paul and Silas did not let their previous experience tame them. They didn't say, well, let's be more careful this time in Thessalonica. They said, nope, this is what we signed up for. Onward. And they had that same boldness. So don't fear the conflicts. Be courageous in the service of the Lord. So that's number one. Let's look at verses three and four now. For, so again, you see these conjunctions. It's all tied together. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So he uses that word for. It's an explanatory conjunction. He says, we're bold in the midst of conflict. Why? Well, verses 3 and 4 tells us why. It's the nature of the message that makes them bold. He says, our appeal, and that word is paraklesis. It's encouragement, exhortation. Remember when Jesus said, I will send you the Holy Spirit, another comforter? The word is paraclete, right? I'm sending you another encourager. Same word here. So our appeal, encouragement, exhortation, whatever it is, is not out of, number one, error, meaning it's a true message. It's not out of impurity, meaning their message is not a mask for their sin. And number three, it's not deception. They're not hiding anything. This is what it's not. So why? Okay, so we're not doing it for any of those reasons. So why are they doing it? He says, because we have been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. So not only is the message true, but they recognize that they're truly serving God. This amounts to what we'll call sincerity, sincere service. They really believed this stuff, is what that basically amounts to. They knew what they said was true, and they knew that they were serving God himself. There were no attempts to tailor the message to the crowd. That would imply that the gospel is malleable, which it is not. Now, this doesn't mean that if you're speaking to a Gentile crowd, you're going to talk one way or a Jewish crowd another, because you're trying to get the same message across, but sometimes you've got to come from different ways. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, well, these people are rich. They have an opportunity to bless this ministry, so let's not talk about sin so much. They might not like that. Or we're talking to poor people, so you know what we'll do? We'll talk about how God judges the rich, and we'll get them all fired up and angry, and then they'll be on our team. He says, we're not going to do that. Because we're not serving them. We're serving God himself. They shared all of it. That's another thing, too. There's no deception. They didn't keep anything back from the people. So many folks, I mean, not just today. This has been the case throughout church history. They want to change what they preach to please poor or rich or conservative or liberal or powerful or downtrodden. Now, this can mean one of two things. We usually think of toning the message down. You can't ever tone the message down. You've got to preach sin. You've got to preach the blood. You've got to preach forgiveness. Absolutely. But it also applies to amping the message up, too. Oh, I can't stand these people. I'm going I'm to load both barrels and let it loose in their face. Well, that's not good either. Jesus, of course, went to the tax collectors and the sinners and the lepers and the, the prostitutes, and he gave them the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he was so merciful, and we're like, oh, thank you, Jesus. 
Then he goes to Zacchaeus' house, who was a rich, oppressive tax collector. And all the people got mad. Hey, you're on our team, not their team. And Jesus is like, I don't play teams, baby. I'm here to preach the same gospel to him that I preached to you. I'm going to show the same mercy to him that I showed to you. And our problem is we want to have a different level of intensity with different groups. Jesus never did that because it was a sincere message. And this is really the thing, right? We actually believe this stuff. We're not going out in order to work out a certain plan. We believe that the message itself is effective. We're not people pleasers. We're not prosperity teachers that are going to show up and tell you that if you just wish hard enough in Jesus' name, then you're going to go home and there's going to be a Ferrari in your parking lot. By the way, you've got a parking lot now, not a driveway anymore, because your house has expanded to be five times as big. Well, that's the easiest message in the world to preach. Who doesn't want to hear that, you know? But so we're not like that. We're not people pleasers. We're also not deceptive. We're not keeping things back. We're not like some of these cults, you know? where you can join, and we'll tell you the first bit, but you don't get the rest until later. You know, the Mormons will do that. The Freemasons will do that. The Jehovah's Witnesses will do that. They're, oh, we'll give you the first part, and then we'll see it. I'll tell you right now. I've been to seminary, and I'm ordained. This is all the Bible we've got. There's no, like, secret 67th book that when you become a pastor, they lead you down into the catacombs, and this is what we really, it's, that makes for good TV. That's not reality. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. This, if there's one verse that I hope will characterize our ministry as a church, it's this one right here. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Why do we insist on preaching the message in sincerity this way? Because we really believe it. And as he says, we truly believe that God, there's two things he says in that passage, has tested and is testing us. The word is dokimatso. It means to evaluate or to test or to grade and to approve something. So he says, we've been approved by God, but God is also constantly watching. It's the same thing that about the message. The message is real. We also believe there's a real God who's really watching. Sincere ministry. So if your ministry is only about drawing big crowds and making people happy, this is not the right religion for you. There's lots of other religions that are very nice sounding and make everybody happy. But we believe this, that it's true. And we believe that God is real. So our ministry has to be sincere. You can't just say, well, I think that there's some beneficial things to Christianity, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve as much as I can. No. No, 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 no. We believe this is real and it's true. Sincerity. Number three. We're going to verse five and six here. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So he mentioned there that we're not pleasing men, we're pleasing God. And he elaborates on that. He reminds them that we didn't flatter you. We weren't greedy. We weren't glory hounds. They didn't come as flatterers. You ever heard a flatterer speak? You ever have a salesman show up to your job or your house and, you know, you know for a fact that they're trying to sell you something, but they just won't talk about the product. They just want to compliment how cute your kids are and what a lovely house you have and, it's like, okay, just get to it, pal. You know, we can't stand that. But it happens. 
I, I went to a Christian high school growing up, and we had preaching every single week. So I've seen all manner of preachers, and some of them come in and you know, they got 40 minutes to speak, and they spend 20 minutes talking about how great they thought the founder of the school was and how wonderful they thought this pastor was. And, you know, I was 15. I didn't care about any of that, you know. So I don't know why they bothered, but it's true. Even if you look at the life of George Whitfield, a lot of his biographies, they point out that he had a relationship with uh, the Countess of Huntington. She was a woman that sponsored his ministry and paid for a lot of these things. And you read the letters that he wrote to her, and it's like, oh, Georgie. He's like, your most high wonderfulness, uh, such a little worm as me who's blessed to serve you, and I thank you for all the, your gifts and benefits, and I would crawl on my knees over broken glass to come and help. It's like, oh, dude. You get up in the, to preach, and you, you got full of fire, and then all of a sudden you're talking to somebody who's in a higher station than you, and you're bowing and scraping. And it, it's so incongruous. It's the same way for us. We shouldn't be that way. We want to be not looking for anything from people. That's the truth of ministry. We're not looking for money. We're not looking for prestige. We must be selfless in our service, just like Paul and Silas and Timothy were. Selfless service. So that's flattery. What, what about people who are greedy, obsessed with money? I love that word for greedy. It's pleonexia. Plea comes from the word that means full or many or much. And then ex is like echo. It means half. And then ia. So Having full ia. So I, I could put it this way. It's have more-itis. That's greed. I need to have more. It's a sickness that I have to have more. Have more-itis. People who insist upon their paychecks, insist upon their titles. There's a whole passage in the Gospels where Jesus says, don't let anybody call you father. Don't let anybody call you teacher. Don't let anybody call you pastor. Which, that's a tough thing. Because we, culturally, we don't like to do that. Like, well, I earned this title. I'm Reverend Dr. So-and-so, you know. The ministry can be an unfortunate temptation for the greedy and people who want prestige. But Paul says, even though that our team could have been supported financially by you, he says, we, we have a, a right as God's ministers to make our living through the gospel, but we didn't make use of that privilege because we didn't want to take anything from you. 1 Corinthians 9, 14 and 15, Paul expands on this whole chapter. 1 Corinthians 9 is about this topic, but I'll read these two verses. He says, In the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. So Paul says, I, I could have been supported by you. There would have been nothing wrong with that. But I wanted to go above and beyond in order to bless you. They wanted to serve Thessalonica, not themselves. Same should be true of you. If you see your service in the church as a means of advancement or a means of profit, then you're, you best move right along because that's going to corrupt everything you do. There are some folks that don't serve because they know that there's no profit or advancement to be had, so they're not interested. Let's talk about worship leaders for a second. I'm a worship leader. I used to lead a worship team in a large church with a big, prominent worship ministry school in town. Got all kinds of people coming and wanting to play guitar and piano and sing on our team. But a lot of them, not, not even most of them, but a lot of them, would come and you find out they're not so much interested in serving the body of Christ and serving the Lord as they are finding an outlet for their creative passions. They want to be seen 
One of those people that if I were to ask you to sing at the back of the stage, you wouldn't do it. But if I ask you to sing up front, yeah, I'm all in. Let's go. People that I would tell them, hey, you got to tone the guitar work down because it's distracting. And then they'd get angry and huff off the stage because you're, you're taking away from, they, they try to make it all spiritual, my worship. It's like, I expect you to subordinate the way you worship for the purpose of the body of Christ and their worship. But there are, there, what happened? I'm called. I heard this one all the time. I feel called to lead worship here. I'm like, that's great. We practice Wednesday nights at 9. Ooh, that's kind of late. You know what? Maybe I'm called down to the, the other church down the street. People that want to, they'll serve in the church until that record deal comes in, and then they're gone. And you can apply that to any level of ministry, but it happens. Even those like myself, I will say, who have taken advantage of the right that the, the Bible describes of earning your living through the preaching of the gospel, we ought to be prepared to lay it down at a moment's notice for the church's sake. If we ever got to a place where the church would be hurting because of me making money, you better believe I'd be back on that junk truck in an instant. No one could accuse Paul of ministering for his own sake. He was selfless. Same thing should be true for us. It's not about money, not about prestige. If that's what you want, you're in the wrong place. Moving on, verses 7 and 8. Instead of making demands, verse 7, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. So he already described the other word nature of ministry. It's not about me, it's about the people we're serving. And he explains that not just did we do this because it's right, we did it because we love you guys. Compassionate service is our next one here. They were compassionate. Verse 7 has a very interesting textual note there because you might have a footnote when he says, but we were gentle among you. The text in the Greek there, there are different witnesses that have a different word there. And this is, I think, a very good illustration of this. You know we have thousands and thousands of ancient manuscripts of the New Testament. It's very, very cool. What that allows us to do is to go back almost to the very beginning and compare the, the text to know what was original and what was, was maybe changed or had errors in it over time to get back to what the original said. Now, we have two very well-represented possibilities here. And this is, I think, a good illustration. The word in Greek for gentle is napioi. The word in Greek for infants is apioi. You're only missing that N at the beginning, the new in Greek. And the word that comes before that in Greek ends with an N. It ends with a new. So there were no punctuation. There were no spaces between words in the, the Greek text back then. So you can see how it would be very easy either to accidentally write two N's or to accidentally drop one N because you think you already wrote it. So this is how text criticism works. You look at that and it's very obvious to see what happened here. And then you go through the process and you try to determine based on what you have uh, which one would be original. But I think what you can see here, either way, it amounts to the same thing, doesn't it? Just, we were gentle among you or we were infants among you. It's the same thing. An infant is a gentle thing. You know, an infant might try to be aggressive, but they're so small, even when they try to, you know, get mad, it's just kind of cute. So, very interesting. I thought that was cool. This, this is one of the things that we look at, but no troublesome effect here. Whatever the case, they were tender and affectionate. He even says like a nursing mother. This is a true compassion. It's not a put-on attitude, you know. It's not a false attitude. You see that it was not just the message 
that they shared. It was not just a job for Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. He said, we shared our own selves with you, dear Thessalonians. He, he had to write, oh, foolish Galatians, but he gets to write, dear Thessalonians. Romans 12.9 says, let love be genuine, or let love be without hypocrisy. One of the hardest parts of ministry, any ministry, whether you're doing kids, whether you're doing greeting in the front, or setting up chairs, or you're preaching the gospel, one of the hardest parts is sharing yourself with the people you're serving. It's hard. It is hard. Because if you do this right, if you love people that you're serving the way you're supposed to, you will always be the most invested party in that relationship. Because for most folks who come to church, not that it's not important to them, but church is one thing they do throughout the week. They also have jobs. They also have neighbors and families. When you're a servant of Christ, especially full-time, you know, that's the most important thing to you. So let me use myself as an example. You are like all the people that I know. <laughs> you folks here, especially because I haven't lived here very long. I know you guys, and that's about it. So my dearest and best friends and the people I love the most are here. That's a painful proposition because a good pastor, a good servant, a good children's ministry leader, home fellowship leader is always going to love the people they're serving more than the people that they're serving. And that can lead, if you're not careful, to becoming a hard man in the service of the Lord. You ever met a pastor who's been hurt and is like, I'm never letting that happen again. So they develop that rough, tough exterior where there's, they might admire their preaching, they might like the ministry, but there's no getting close to that man or that girl, whatever the ministry is. But the hard part is letting yourself remain compassionate for those that you love. It's hard, man. When you pour your life into somebody, I, this has happened countless times and it'll happen again to me. You pour your life into somebody. You take their midnight phone calls. You stay after church for hours to talk to them about things. You work through stuff with them. You talk to their parents. You talk to their girlfriends and their, their kids or whoever. And you're right there helping them. And they tell you, oh, thank you so much. I love you. You're the best thing that ever happened. God's used you in so many ways. And then one day out of the blue, they don't show up to church and they send a phone call. Hey, our needs aren't being met. We're moving somewhere else. Or... Worse, you never really cared about me. You, you never really cared. You don't really love me. You don't tell, you don't tell me what I need. It's all, a, it's all a show, and I'm out of here. I can't stand you anymore. That's like a knife to your gut, you guys. Some of you all know how that feels. It's hard. And sometimes it gets corrected. Sometimes it doesn't. But you cannot let that possibility, or let's say that certainty, drive you to being cynical in God's service. If you can't have compassion and love real love for the people you're serving, you're not going to do it right. It becomes like DMV church. People at DMV do not care about you. <laughs> Y'all know that to be true. You go in there and you say, excuse me, uh, can we, I, I'm actually on my lunch break. I've got like 20 minutes to get back. Can we move this quickly? They're going to give you that look that says, we're going to go exactly as fast as I want to go. We have one speed around here, slow. That's where we're going. But I'll tell you what. Ministry can be like that if, you, if you're not careful, where you're shuttling people in and out, and you're not really taking the time to speak to them. And there are, there are some folks that when the ministry's over, you can't even find them. They vanish. You've got to put yourself out there and sincerely care. And yes, you will get hurt, but that's what Jesus did for you. Isn't that the case? And there are some times where you, so to speak, are being suffering on behalf of somebody, where they watch that happen and it changes their heart. That happens. 
you got to do whatever it takes to gain the compassionate love for the ones you're serving. The Thessalonians weren't just another stop on the road. They cared and loved these people. Verse 9. For you remember. See how he keeps on saying you remember, you know. He's calling their minds to what they've already seen. You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. So he mentioned that they did not assert their apostolic rights in taking money from the church. And then he kind of explained why. He says, because we loved you so much. But now he kind of comes back and elaborates on that a little further. He says, you remember our labor and toil. These are tough words. Labor is kapos and toil is makthos. Kapos means work to the point of fatigue and exhaustion. Not just, oh, it's time to go home already, 449. Yeah, it's close enough. I'm out of here. Fatigue and exhaustion. And makthos, it means, it says here, I think, uh, toil, but it, it means hardship, genuine hardship. This was, here's our next thing, hardworking service. You remember from the book of Acts, Paul was a tent maker. And might have been more than just a tent maker. It could have been that he was just a leather worker in general. He used that trade to provide himself, for himself, so as it says, he might not be a burden. Because y'all are already dealing with your souls. I didn't want you also have to worry about paying for my bills. So I'm going to work as hard as I can. Now we do know that the Philippians, according to Philippians 4.16, it tells us that they sent financial support to Paul at least twice while he was in Thessalonica which was great. God, uh, Paul did not require that of them. That was just out of the wellspring of their heart, their own generosity. But it, Paul supplemented that with hard work, he says, night and day. <laughs> it is always a tragedy when ministers of the gospel or those who are supposed to stand in the place of God are lazy. I think of Hophni and Phinehas in the Old Testament. These were the two sons of Eli. Now, Eli was a godly man, but he was a rotten father. It's very interesting how often that comes up in Scripture. Godly men are rotten fathers. But these two boys, grown men, really, they were in charge of the temple and any, or tabernacle. Anytime anybody come to make a sacrifice, they would take the biggest portion for themselves. They were taking the money out of the treasury, and they were sleeping with the women that would come to the tabernacle. And it said that the people despised the offering of the Lord because of them. They knew they had to go because it was God, but they hated it because they would have to deal with these two guys. We're about to talk about the Reformation on Wednesday. John Tetzel, he was a preacher selling indulgences. He was selling salvation out of hell. He was selling forgiveness for sin. The idea was, I'm going to pay for my forgiveness now so that when I go do the rotten thing later, I don't have to worry about it. It's already covered. And he would go around manipulating people and ginning up money so that the church, the Roman church, could build its weird empire that they were building and people began to despise it so that when martin luther and those guys finally spoke up it went so far beyond what was right and normal because the people were just fed up with it and it took on not just a spiritual aspect but a political aspect and a rebellious aspect it's dangerous when people in the church are using their rights or using their ministry to serve themselves and they're not working hard i myself started ministry as a volunteer as most do before I was paid a dime for doing ministry, I was at the church every day. <laughs> I'd come off of school, I'd, if I had my job, I'd go to my job, but I would just be there. You know, I was doing youth ministry and I was doing worship ministry and all those other things, cleaning toilets and everything, before I got paid for it. 
So that when an opportunity came up to get a job at the church, I'm like, oh, this is very cool. I started out making, I think it was $8 an hour working for the radio station there. And that was not a glamorous position. Don't think, you know, like, hey, DJ Tyler coming at you, you know. <laughs> I, was, I was the one downloading stuff, uploading stuff, taking phone calls. And, man, when you have a radio station, you get some crazy phone calls, let me tell you. And I, I wasn't getting very many paid hours. But what happened is I'd work. My hours for the day would be up. And I would just stick around because where else am I going to go? This is the Lord's church. And then, you know, it increased from there. And then I was making a decent salary, and I was able to get married. That was cool. You know, then finally I was, I was getting paid all right there at the church as an assistant pastor. But then I knew that God called me to come down here. And you all remember, like Paul said, I came down and there was a little support coming from home for a few months. And then I drove a truck for 1-800-GOT-JUNK for more than a year. And I'll tell you, there were days when you cleared out a hoarder's house or somebody wanted all the dog's hair and the rest of the stuff that comes from a dog scooped up out of their basement, and then you've got employees yelling and screaming at you and cussing you out, and then you go to the landfill, and it gets stuck in the mud, and the big tractor comes and pushes it, and that breaks the taillight, so that's going to come out of your paycheck, and then I'm sitting in traffic on the way home, and it's 6.48. I'm sitting there like, what am I doing here? I'm telling you, I'm just being real honest with you. Like, I was, in, I was living next to my parents. I had a good salary. We were doing well. I, I had friends and connections back home. I was traveling the world on missions trips. I have a master's degree. What am I doing here? And it was hard, I'll tell you. But the Lord kept reminding me, you are here for this church. And if I had waited until everybody was able to provide fully for me, it never would have happened. But it's not about that, you know? And, you know, eventually it went on from there, and now we're... Uh, Catlin is helping work, and I'm at the house taking care of the kids, which is a huge blessing on its own, and there's sort of this half-and-half half thing going on. Eventually, we'll probably get to the place where I can just do this all the time, and that's like a dream come true for me. But you know what? Whatever the situation is, the servant of God is to be working hard. So do you guys remember how tired I was when I was working for God Junk? I'd show up on Sunday morning, hey, man, are you okay? And I would come home, and I'd tell Cat, I said, i gotta, I got to start smiling more because everybody keeps asking me if I'm okay. <laughs> Make no mistake, laboring in the word, preaching, studying, translating, planning things through, it's hard work. It is hard work. But it can also become a, a place to loaf if you're not careful. There are pastors, there are servants of the Lord that don't work hard, even in your ministry. You know, you can, you can be a greeter in the church and do a great job with it. Or it can be a way for you to skip a few songs during worship because you don't like the music anyway. You can do a great job teaching those kids. How many of you guys had a Sunday school teacher growing up that just radically changed your life? You can be that, or you can be that other kind of Sunday school teacher. And you know which one I'm talking about. We're like, oh, no, not her, not again. I'm not going to read this for time's sake, but 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 through 10, Paul says a lot of the same things, where he ends up by saying, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. That should especially apply to the church, man. You want, you want people to provide for you in the church so that you can get up on stage and not put any effort into it, not put any thought into it, and just spout out your theories that you've been reading in the news all week long? I don't think so. You ought to be working hard no matter what, right? <laughs> doesn't matter if you're in the church or not, but especially when you're serving the Lord. Why have we become such experts on the dangers of burning out? What, what is our problem? Well, you don't want to burn out in the service. Why not? Don't burn out then. 
We're like, well, you know, I, I don't want to do too much because, you know, I do have a lot of football games to watch. And with streaming technology, I can get access to all of them now. So why are we not thrilled to have the opportunity to sweat in the service of Jesus Christ? You ever been on a missions trip and you spend the whole day evangelizing and, and working for the church and encouraging people and talking about Jesus and reading your Bibles and you get in bed and you're exhausted? Isn't that the best feeling in the whole world? It's like, I'm worn out for Jesus' sake. We ought to be willing and eager to work hard for the Lord and to expect the same of one another, by the way. We've got to call each other to that. Hey, man, this is important. This is a blessing. Verse 10. I think we all have time to get through all of these. Verse 10. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. So he says, you're witnesses, God is our witness, that we were holy and righteous and blameless. Pretty much all of what we've said so far could fall into this category, but Paul kind of covers his bases by saying, we had blameless service. Jason, who was the host that was hosting them while they were in Thessalonica. He was dragged before the judgment seat, the Bema seat, to answer for the crimes of these people. But Paul's like, you know that all that was made up. That was all a lie. There wasn't anything to those accusations. They'd been blameless. A Christian servant, and we're all supposed to be servants, so a Christian, is to be blameless, obedient to the commandments of Christ, with no opportunity for anyone to raise an accusation against you. We read about this on Wednesday night, Genesis 17.1. God told Abraham, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Now, to be blameless does not mean to be sinless. Okay, Only one was sinless, and that was Jesus Christ. John would say in 1 John, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar, or you're deceiving yourself. But it means that even when we do sin, there's humility, there's repentance, there's effort to work towards God's standards and his commandments. It's so easy to get caught up in the work of ministry. You show up every Sunday, there's coffee to be made, there's floors to be vacuumed, there's Windex that's got to be put on the windows, there's children's ministry got to be set up, I've got to get my notes together, we've got to make sure the worship team is, is sound checked and everything. There's so much work to be done that we can miss the importance of being obedient and holy in the Lord's service. And there are some folks that will even say it out loud. They'll say, listen, as long as we're doing the right thing, it's really not as important how we do it. I, I, if we've learned one thing from the Bible, haven't we learned that what you do is important, but how you do it is just as important? Well, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm doing work for the Lord Jesus. No, but how you do it matters. We're getting the coffee ready. Yeah, but if you're barking at people for taking too many creamers, you know, that, that's not serving the Lord in holiness and love. This is why even when, you know, we, we love to teach through the Word. We teach theology. We, we address problems in our lives. But we constantly, like we're doing today, want to be emphasizing the practical life of obedience to Christ. When Jesus came, consider this, especially during election time. When Jesus came, he had the opportunity to speak to the big picture. But he didn't do that. He went to individual people and said, let's talk about you. What's going on in your life? Where, where are you falling short? Where are you doing well? And we can get caught up in that too. We think, we're, I'm a Christian. I'm on the right team. So, you know, it doesn't really matter how I live. Not true. You've got to be holy and blameless. Nobody should be able to point at you and say, well, she calls herself a Christian, but she blank, blank, blank. She's a gossip. No, he says he's a Christian. But man, don't get on that guy's bad side. 
He'll jump down your throat. I know she says she's a Christian, but she's so manipulative. Every time you talk to her, she's trying to get you to do that thing without asking you to do it. Yeah, that guy says he's a Christian, but every time you turn your back, he's flirting with all the girls. Don't do that. Be blameless. Just because you are a faithful servant does not mean you are blameless. And this is often where conflict comes in, an accusation in the church. I remember a friend of mine who is a godly man and a friend of mine, which is why I was baffled that he did this. But he had somebody come and speak at his church. He was going to have a revival meeting with a guy who, first of all, was famous for when people would come up for prayer, he would punch them and kick them and throw them to the ground in order to beat the devil out of them. And I mean, like, I'm not talking like, oh, he swung his fist. I'm talking like popping people. Not only that, but this guy also was caught later in a whole bunch of affairs and a whole bunch of financial mismanagement and abusing his staff and, and all this. And after all that happened, this guy let this dude come and preach at his church. And I was like, man, what are you doing? Are you crazy? He goes, well, this man has gifts from the Lord. And while we don't approve of his life, we want to benefit from those gifts. Absolutely not. How you minister matters. I'll tell you, there are a lot of preachers and writers and authors that I benefit from personally as a Christian, but I'm never going to hold them up as an example to anybody because they are not good examples. I hope that any of us, whether we're here or anywhere else, can have that Acts 20 moment where Paul's like, I'm innocent of the blood of all of you because I did everything God told me to do. Blameless, blameless service. Here's our last one, verses 11 and 12. For you know, see how it keeps coming back? For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So earlier Paul compared them to a mother. Now he's comparing them to a father. And I think there's a place for both those things. Mom's job with the kids is to be sweet and tender and understanding. And I'm going to throw my self into her arms when I'm crying. Dad's job is to be the, the, let's put it positively, the call to adventure, the call to maturity, laying down the rule, saying this is where we're going, this is how we're going to do it. We always laugh around our house because when Catelyn makes lunch for the kids or makes dinner for the kids, she'll be like, all right, we're making this. What do you want? Do you want that? Oh, I'll, I'll get you some of this. Yeah, I think we have some of that. Oh, if you don't like it, it's okay. We'll get you this here. Dad makes lunch first and then calls the kids. Your lunch is on the table. That's what you're eating. Now, listen, both those things are good because they learn from one that, hey, we love you guys and we want to be kind to you. But they're also learning that sometimes you just got to accept what comes your way. So you, you need to have both in the church. He says they exhorted and encouraged them. There, there might be a fun little men's study to do here on how Paul compares himself to a father in the church and describes a father's job. But he says they exhorted and encouraged them. So you've got that, that negative command. An exhortation is sort of like a, hey, come on, get with it. And encouragement is, a, is trying to build you up, you know. So there's both to walk worthy of God especially his kingdom and glory. Now, this last word might not make a lot of sense to you, but I like it. The last one here is upward service. We are constantly making the call to go higher with the Lord, to go further, to go deeper with the Lord. You know, when you fail and you do badly, your mom is there and say, hey, baby, it's okay, I love you, let's go home, we're going to have a good day. When you strike out and you come to your dad, dad, I struck out, I say, well, if you'd practiced more, maybe you wouldn't strike out so much. 
It's an upward call. It's not because dad hates the kid. It's because I want you to do better, and I know you can do better, so let, let's work and let's go farther. This is what he's talking about here. You know that passage, again, for time, I'm not going to read all of it, but 2 Peter chapter 1, when he says, make every effort to add to your faith virtue, and add to virtue knowledge, and that whole list. He's talking about progress, always moving forward in your walk with Jesus Christ. You might call this discipleship, where a good father has an interest in his son developing to his full potential. And this is what we ought to be for one another. It's about walking worthy Axios, working worthy of the calling. What does it mean to walk? You know this. Jesus compared the Christian life to a road. It's a narrow road. It's a difficult road, and not very many people find it. The early church, rather than Christians, what were they called? The way. You're walking down the way. So how are you going to walk? Well, you're not worthy of the kingdom, but what would it look like if you were? Walk like that. Consider the analogy of, of a young prince who's being groomed for his future role. You're going to have great responsibility. You're going to have a great power coming your way. So you need to get ready for that. You need to walk worthy of that so when the moment comes, you're ready to step into it without missing a beat. In the same way, you and I have an inheritance coming, don't we? We're going to rule and reign with Christ in his kingdom when he's going to fully realize his authority on the earth. Your service to Christ ought to be calling the ones you serve to live in light of that, in preparation and in gratitude for what's coming. It's not good in ministry to allow people to languish in their sin and their struggle, to work through the same thing without making any progress for years and years. We have a common goal, don't we? We're all going to the same place. It's the kingdom of God, the coming kingdom, but also that right now kingdom where Jesus rules over your heart like that's his kingdom. We should all be calling each other to make measurable progress, which is why we need to get to know each other so that you've got that kind of relationship with folks in the church. You can say, hey, let's step up. We've had this conversation five times. Let's go. You know, I, I've told you, you know what to do. This isn't a secret. Let's keep going. Sometimes it's an encouragement, you know. Hey, don't worry. We're going to get there. It's going to be all right. Sometimes it's an exhortation. I've ministered to a lot of young men through youth ministry and a lot of times you come and you, they just need a hug other times you got to tell them stop crying get up and do the right thing there is a time to say that paul would tell timothy in first timothy 4 15 he says work so that everybody can see your progress can people look at your life and say when i first met you you had some stuff going on you know i loved you but you had some you had an attitude I mean, you were lazy. You didn't know anything about the word, but now it's been three, four, five years. You, you've, you've just changed. You're the same person, and maybe the remnants of those things are still there, but you've progressed. It's an upward call. This ministry team was constantly working with these people that they loved to call them higher because the kingdom was coming. They're going to be in the kingdom. He says, hey, let's walk worthy of that kingdom, not in the light of right now, but in the light of what's coming. So that's, that's our passage today. Seven characteristics of Paul's ministry, to, to remind you of them all, summarize them here. Number one, it was courageous, it was sincere, it was selfless, compassionate, hardworking, blameless, and, I like number seven, upward. Every one of you, as a Christian, is filled with the Spirit of God. You have a role to play in the body of Christ. So, number one, you've got to serve actively and faithfully. You've got to find a place where your contributions can be utilized. 
Sometimes we just want to be served, you know. Well, I work hard every week. I want to come to church. I want people to take care of me. Don't they know all the problems I've got? Why don't they come take care of my problems first? We don't need that attitude here. You, you want to come with the attitude to serve. And sometimes when we do serve, we want to be properly honored for it. There's a fellow we met in Nepal who was really upset because we kept on referring to them as servants of God. He's like, I don't want to be a servant. I want to be God's ambassador. That was, that was his title he came up with. God's ambassador. And we'd be like, uh, no. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you must be the servant of all. Mark 10, Jesus said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The church needs you, every one of you. Can I say something specific to our church here? I know that I'm a young pastor, and we have a lot of young people serving here. This is not a young church. We are not seeking to plant a church for young folks. We're here to plant a church for everybody. Church is planted. So those of you who are here and have walked with the Lord for a long time and know the word and know how it ought to be, we need you. We've got a lot of youthful enthusiasm. We need a lot of wisdom, too. We need a lot of that brought together. So I, I don't want there to ever be a divide between the young folks in the church and the older folks in the church. There shouldn't be. It's all together. And I don't know how that looks for you. You've got to pray it through and find out. But the church needs every one of us. We're a body. Every part has to be working together properly. And when you do engage in the service to which you're called, these things we talked about today, that's how you do it. Sincerity, love, effort, obedience. And like Paul and Silvanus and Timothy reminded the Thessalonians, I remind you too. You've been called by God into his own kingdom and glory. Someday you are going to be, as the word says, kings and priests in God's millennial kingdom. How awesome is that? So walk worthy of that hope, like Paul did, like Christ did, and like we're all striving to do here. It's going to take a lot of grace, but the Lord has given us the grace for that, hasn't he?